And now, Father, as we have sung, we have come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so much as the newborn king, and we'll certainly do that through this season, but rather as our king who is, at least in the, in the part of the Gospel of John that we are in, is about to give his life as a ransom for many. No, Father, I pray that as we read through and as we think deeply about the words of Jesus' prayer in John 17, I pray that you would reveal his glory and your glory, the glory of your purpose and your plan for us and how we participate in that and benefit from it. No, Father, I pray that you would use it to put a rock under our feet and a ballast in our boat to keep us upright in the storms of life and to remind us of why we are here. Thank you, Father, for the security that we have in Christ, by your grace and for your glory. And we give you thanks for it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've been watching the news uh, this week, and maybe if you haven't even been watching, you certainly couldn't have missed the news about the evil that wreaked great havoc in California this week. And whenever we see this kind of thing, it reminds us that we live in a world that is racked by such evil that it is beyond man's ability to subdue and control, no matter how, how much money we throw at it or how much we strategize against it. And we should, and we should. But we are limited in our ability to keep ourselves secure. It seems to me in the day in which we live, the issue of security is of greater concern to people than it's been in a long time. We're afraid of things. We're afraid something's going to happen. Something bad is going to happen. We're afraid of losing our money to those who might get our personal information and rob us without us even knowing it. We're, we're concerned about um, our possessions and we're concerned about the condition of our nation and we're in, in some cases concerned even for the safety of our very lives. So concerned are we about security that people are, are willing to pay great sums to at least to try to cure their own protection. As one business research firm points out, overall, Americans spent about $20.64 billion on home security systems in 2011. This is the latest numbers that have been available. And another firm points out that in 2015, the United States um, Department of Defense has spent over $1 trillion in national security. And yet, things like this still happen. After all the effort, all the expense, all the technology, security in this life seems unattainable. And I would argue theologically that security is a myth. Uh, if you're living, if you're making your decisions based on fear, then you'll never accomplish anything worthwhile for the Lord. Uh, how many times have we witnessed or, or heard about the stories of men who have lived all the way through uh, intense firefights in Afghanistan only to come home and, and get shot by a neighbor or get hit by a car and 
and die. Myth, it's a myth. Security is a myth. You will die on the day and at the very moment God calls you home and not one minute before. So after all of the expense, we come to the conclusion that is correct, and yet our response to it is often unbiblical. There's always a chance that someone will find something, some way to do you harm, either something or someone. It may be a tsunami. It may be an earthquake. Uh, this past rain, we were out of town, and the rains came down so hard, washed out a, a significant portion of our backyard. Um, how do you plan for that? How do you respond to that? We could build a bigger wall, but there can be a bigger flood. The reality is nothing that we possess in this life is absolutely secure. Nothing. As much as we want to secure it. We're with our grandbabies this last uh, weekend. And if I could, I would wrap them in bubble wrap <laughs> and keep them from all harm. But in a world where security is a myth, the Word of God offers good news on the topic of security. When it comes to e eternal life purchased for us by the blood of the very Son of God, it is absolutely secure. And ultimately, nothing else matters. Your resurrection is absolutely secure. If you know Christ, living in the knowledge and presence of the Father is absolutely secure. No one can touch it. That's why Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and dust can't come and destroy and where thieves can't come and steal. Our treasure is in heaven. And that's where our security is. It's not in the supplements that I take. It's not in the doctors I visit. It's not in my financial advisors or the new chip on my debit card. <laughs> my hope is only in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing in this life that doesn't change. It's the only thing I can count on no matter what is happening in the world. Now, we've been working our way through Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and we left off last time in the section where Jesus is praying for his disciples on the night, of his, night before his crucifixion. He's concerned about their well-being, especially over the next three days when their whole world will collapse around them as Jesus is arrested and killed. And Jesus is concern for their security. More precisely, I think he is concerned that they learn how secure they really are. No matter what the world may do to them or to their Lord, they are secure because, because of Jesus' finished mediatorial work on the cross, which he was about to accomplish for them, which in itself was so secure, he could say beforehand, my work is done. I have finished the work the Father has given me. No one can take away what God has given them, and they will persevere until the end. As Lorraine Boatner rightly said, 
the saints in heaven may be happier, but they are no more secure than the true believer in this world. Jesus is asking the Father to keep his disciples. The word keep is used throughout this text. He knows that they are an integral part to the Father's ultimate plan. And, and what is that plan? And we, we've got to understand that there's a plan going on here. Some of what Jesus is saying here, as you read it, seems rather convoluted and you can't follow the noodle. You know, what is this train of thought that seems like random things he's stacking together here? But if we understand that he's speaking in the context of the fact that the Father has a plan and Jesus came to accomplish his part of the plan and the apostles have a part of the plan and you and I have a part of that plan, then this text begins to take shape. So what is the plan? What's the plan? The Father's ultimate plan is this, to call out a people a great host that no man can number, a great host of men and women and children from every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue who will truly believe and know intimately the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's God's plan. That's why Jesus said, the one thing he's building in this world, I will build my church. In verses 1 through 5, we saw that the Father has assured the success of that plan through the ministry of his Son. His Son would accomplish the work. And beginning in verse 6, then, his concern is for the part that will be accomplished through the Apostles' ministry. And so Jesus affirms them as authentic and reliable disciples in verses 6 through 10, and then he prays for their protection in verses 7 through 12. And then we ask the question, why do the disciples need protection? Why is Jesus concerned about their protection? And clearly they needed to be kept. They needed to be kept by the Father because, as Jesus already told them, the world hates them and would hate them all the more once Jesus is gone. And secondly, the reality that as soon Jesus would be leaving, and they would be on their own. And that's why he would send the Spirit, the Spirit and the Father working to keep and empower his disciples. Okay, so with all of that as background, let's stand together and read the text. John 17. And I'll start with verse 1. This is so rich, I, I don't want to take the time to add more than what's necessary, but we've just got to start from the beginning again. Is that okay with you? 17.1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
I manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. When I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. I realize in terms of systematic theology, there is a distinction to be made between the doctrine of security and the doctrine of perseverance. When we are students of the scriptures looking at at concepts in the Bible, teaching in the Bible, in a systematic way, it's good to divide things up. Jesus, when he's praying to the Father, mingles it all together. Jesus' prayer to the Father assures us that we have both security and perseverance. In other words, because God is devoted to keeping, guarding, protecting us, our eternal life is secured. Therefore, we will persevere until the end. Jesus wants his men to know that God will preserve them and keep them and secure them and make sure that their faith preserves until the end. Now, last time I gave you a five-point outline. I'm not going to re-preach all that, but let me refresh with it. Number one, what is perseverance? Number two, who does God preserve? Number three, what does... Why does God preserve them? Number four, for what purpose does God preserve them? And number five, from what danger does God preserve them? And we'll focus mainly on the last two, but just by way of refreshing, number one, what is perseverance? Well, a a good definition, and I gave you this last week from Wayne Grudem, is this. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. In other words, the evidence that God is keeping you is that you persevere. So we saw last week perseverance involves two things. Number one, God sovereignly, infallibly keeps and protects the child of God. And secondly, the believer, uh, the believer demonstrates that God is keeping him by his devotion to the Lord. And I unpacked all that last week and won't do it again, except to say that what that means is that you will live by repentance and faith. Not perfection, by repentance and faith. 
we saw these two aspects appearance in the book of Jude. You remember that? Where Jude exhorts us, keep yourselves in the love of God. Praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he reminds us just a few verses later that God is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of, your, of his glory blameless and with great joy. And so we see both aspects of perseverance in this text. God's sovereign, independent work of preserving us and our fallible, dependent work of preserving us. You can't really have one without the other and be biblical. So this is the ground of the believer's security. This is what we mean by perseverance. Number two, who does God preserve? And again, we learned last time from verse six that those whom God preserves are the given ones. You remember that? You are, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are a true follower, believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a given one, meaning that the choice wasn't ultimately yours, although you had a fallible, dependent part of even your salvation in the sense that you made the choice, yes, but behind it was the sovereign activity of God by which he infallibly called you irresistibly to himself to give to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a given one. So Jesus says again and again, you have given them to me. You have given them to me. You have given them to me. And so they are the given ones. And secondly, they are ones who are identified this way. They have kept your word. And isn't that interesting? It's the Father do something infallibly, irresistibly, we may say. And yet, he's giving them to Christ, and what are we doing? We are keeping his word keeping his word, living by repentance and faith day after day, loving the scripture, reading the scripture, praying, ministering, serving, worshiping. And both sides are here. We saw these two aspects of perseverance in the book of Jude, and and here they are fleshed out before us. Verse 6, let's read verse 6. I have manifest your name to the, the, uh, the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave, me to, gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So here we see both sides, both justification and perseverance. The disciples are identified as the ones whom the Father has given to Jesus, and they are the ones who have kept the Father's word Um, Just a note there, Um, the Father gives you to Jesus, but he will not obey for you. He will not believe for you. He gives you the grace to do it. All I'm saying is we have a part. We have a part to play in our sanctification. We have a part to play in our justification, albeit a responsive part in the sense that God transforms our heart and the very first breath that we breathe is, I believe. He gives us life and the first indication that we have life is, God, I believe. And even that is from him. Even the faith by which we grasp onto the salvation that he gives is given to us 
as a gift. In what sense did Jesus keep, did the uh, disciples keep the Father's word? To keep God's word, as we saw last week, is to believe what he revealed about Jesus by coming to him for life. Remember what Peter said that day when the disciples were apostatizing? Uh, not the apostles, the disciples. And there were a lot of disciples. Jesus had a lot of, quote, disciples, right? A lot of false disciples. But they were, John even calls them disciples, and yet they left him. They apostatized. They went back to their own way of thinking, their own way of life. And so many left. That's when Jesus was saying, uh, you, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they went, oh, that's gross. That's weird. That's, I don't know. That sounds wrong. So we're out of here. And a, and a multitude left Jesus, so much so that he turned to the apostles and he said, are, are you going to leave me too? And remember what Peter said? Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the words of eternal life. And there was a lot that the apostles got wrong. But of this they were sure, that Jesus had come from God, that his miracles were, the, were by the power of God, his words were the truth of God, therefore, surely he must be the Son of God. And that's exactly what John is driving at. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the, what? The Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you might have life in his name. Look at verses 7 and 8. This is where it kind of gets unpacked for us. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. They believe that you sent me. This is what it means. You see, while it's true that the only ones who come to Jesus are those who are drawn to him and given him by the Father, it is also true that those who are given to the Father will, in fact, keep his word. They will, in fact, keep his word. Not perfectly, Dependently, yes. Mistakenly sometimes, many times, yes. Sometimes rebellious, yes. But we always find our way home. He always draws us back. So much so that Jesus can look at these fallible men who have blundered so many times and he's just gotten after them in, this, in the upper room discourse and told them they were men of little faith. You know, kind of, why don't you guys get it together? Why don't you understand? Why aren't you grasping this yet? And yet, he turns around and he's speaking to the Father and he says, they've kept your word. I take great heart from that. Great encouragement from that. This is so important for us, for us beloved, and I, I realize that some of what I'm saying is confusing. It's, it's hard to slice this thin enough and really get it right. But what you need to understand is that when God calls you, he makes you his own. There is nothing that anyone or anything, think of Romans 8, that can, that can be done to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not even principalities or powers or things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of Christ. That's true. 
That is the benefit of the gospel. But there are also demands of the gospel. And the demand of the gospel is this, that those of you who know the Lord show that you know the Lord by the way that you live. Manifest the fruit of the Spirit if you have the Spirit. But here's the thing. If you have the Spirit, the fruit will be evident because he's the one who's bearing it. Leonard Copes here helps us by writing these words and maybe this to clarify. There is no question in the scriptures about the eternal security of those truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit. One should be very careful at this point to note, however, that this is no once saved, always saved, no matter what I do doctrine. Indeed, faith without works is not a sign of spiritual sickness, according to James, or backsliding. It is a sign of death. Or I could say it's a sign of being dead. Faith without works is a sign of spiritual death. James 2.17. The biblical doctrine, therefore, he writes, is once saved, always saved, and that you keep on doing what God says because you are dead to sin now and alive to Christ And I would just add, this is not something that's manufactured as a true believer, a true desire of God, a disciple of God. It is rather something that the Holy Spirit works in you. So that when you come to Christ, this is the experience of so many people that I know who came to Christ later in life. And the first indicator that they got the real thing was, I suddenly understood the word of God. I suddenly had a desire to read the scriptures. I've told you a number of times about my mother. First indication that God had given her life was for the first time in her life, she was raised Catholic, um, but for the first time in her life, she had an insatiable desire to read the Bible. And she would tell me, Son, it's, it's like, I mean, I'm not hearing voices in my head or anything, but I get up and I think I'm going to get breakfast, and then I get this overwhelming desire. Don't eat, read. Read. And she devoured the scriptures. How did that happen? She didn't have to think about that. The Holy Spirit was bearing that fruit in her. And the fruit of the tree demonstrates the life of the tree. And all James is saying is, no fruit, no life. But where there is life, there is fruit. Remember when Jesus cursed the uh, fig tree going into Jerusalem? It's the one negative miracle that Jesus did. All the rest were healing, you know, and restoring and, and all of that. But the one time he actually pronounced a curse. And by the next morning, that tree was shriveled up so much so the apostles went, whoa. That thing is shriveled up from the roots up. And what was that about? It was a picture of Israel, Israel's people who thought they were in good with God, and yet there was no fruit. And how many times did Jesus say again and again and again, if there's no fruit, cut down the tree and throw it into the fire? Because where there's life, there's fruit. We're not saved by works, but we're saved, according to Ephesians 2, for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we walk in them. And so when we ask, who does God preserve? The answer is God preserves the given ones, 
those who have been chosen by God, redeemed by him and given to the Son, who are the same ones who, whom he preserves as those who keep his word. These are the ones whom God the Father preserves. They persevere as people who are desirous and ambitious toward keeping God's word. And when they see that they haven't and they've sinned, it grieves them. And they come back by Jesus' invitation who said, if, well, through 1 John, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. It's not perfection. It's truth. It's being honest about your sin, open and honest about your sin. So these first two verses make it easier to answer the third question. Why does God preserve them? And it's not merely because he is bound to do so by some cosmic contractual agreement devised between him and the Son before the creation of the world. And the Father will preserve us, and here's why. It's because he loves us. He loves us. And we are precious in his sight. And the, the whole tone of this passage, look, notice verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. These are all possessive pronouns. You have given them to me, for they were yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. This is all about possession. Who owns us? Who do we belong to? And Jesus is saying, they're yours, and they're mine. I mean, they're mine, but they're yours. They're ours. You know who we talk like that about? We talk like that about our children. And I think that's why he uses the word father. This is, this is a family conversation. This is Jesus, the son, the, the firstborn, talking to the father about his brothers and sisters. Well, mainly here as brothers, the 12 apostles. There have been occasions when I've had a book in my library that was so precious to me. I put my name in the front, put my name in the middle, <laughs> put my name on the bottom pages. Don't you dare, if you find my name, I hope the Holy Spirit, you know, does something. <laughs> I don't want to say curse, but write my name in the back. This is mine. I love this thing. And sure enough, if I love it that much, I know the Lord's probably going to take it from me. But, <laughs> but you know what? That's what Jesus is doing here. It's mine. It's the Father and the Son got their stamp, and they're going, it's mine. They're mine. They're mine. They're yours. They're mine. They're yours. They're mine. They're ours. They are, there are certain persons, Spurgeon writes, there are certain persons so precious to Christ that they are marked all over with special tokens that they belong to him. God looks upon his people as his portion, his possession, his property. Every man has something or other which he values above the rest of his estate. And here the Lord, by so reiterating the words which signify possession, proves that he values his people above all things. Notice how the Lord seems to have the seal in his hand 
and he stamps it over and over, his particular possession, my particular possession. They are yours, and all are mine. All that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. What does all of that mean? His people are precious to him. Before the creation of the world, God determined to give us a gift, give a gift of love, not to us, but to his son. And we are that gift. And though we may be guilty and vile and helpless, yet we are loved by the eternal father who created us for his pleasure and for the glory of his son. And beloved, that's, that's something to think, sing about. The emphasis of Scripture is rarely on our love for God. It is almost exclusively on God's love for us. And that is not to exalt our value, but rather to exalt His glory. And this catches us up from last time and brings us to the fourth question. We have asked, what is perseverance? Who does God preserve? Why does God preserve them? And now, for what purpose does God preserve them? Verses 9 and 10, and I've already read them. We need to note here that Jesus goes out of his way to clarify that he's not praying for everyone. He's not praying for everyone. Isn't that interesting? In this pluralistic society, you would think, um, when, you, when you talk about God, God loves everybody the same. Not so here. He's, not, he's, he's specifically not praying for the world, the object of his prayer is exclusively the given ones who have kept the Father's word. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't love the world. I mean, that was a scandal of John 3.16, right? And it's a scandal even among Reformed people today, especially those who have only been grasping that truth for a short time. What in the world could Jesus be saying in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. I thought he loved the elect. He does. He does. And in a very peculiar and special way, which Jesus is emphasizing here. And yet he loves the world. That would have been scandalous to Nicodemus who was hearing it for the first time. But it was something that was consistent all the way through the Old Testament. God meant Israel to be a light to the nations. And some of the most scandalizing things that Jesus said in his ministry was that tax collectors and sinners would get into the kingdom quicker than the Pharisees and scribes, and that I have other sheep outside of this fold. What does that mean? Outside of Jerusalem? No, outside of Israel. Outside of ethnic Israel, there is another flock. It's people from everywhere else. It was scandalous. God loves the world, and he's calling people from all over the world to be saved. God loves the world. But his love for the world is not the kind of love we read about in Ephesians 2 that moves him to um, elect and save some. Any prayer for the world could only be that they would be saved which would effectively remove them from the world. And so Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. 
MacArthur observes, the only recorded instance in the New Testament of Jesus praying for the unregenerate is his cry from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the amazing thing is, as you read further into the book of Acts, you find that some of them who were there and had Jesus crucified, some of the Romans and some of the Jews, repented. And Jesus' prayer was answered. Notice again how Jesus refers to his men at the end of verse 9. They are yours. In verse 6, he said, they were yours. And now he's saying, they are yours. And so first, we belong to the Father. And, and this is mystery, right? But if I just track this as best I can, first, we belong to the Father who chose us from the foundation of the world. And then he gave some, the given ones, the apostles, to his Son. And now, all who are in Christ belong to the Father once again. And so here again we see this gracious condescension of the Father that he would love us and want us to belong to him and want him to belong to us. And then Jesus makes a most remarkable statement. Verse 10, he says, all things mine are yours. Now, that's not the remarkable part because anybody can say that, right? Everything I have belongs to the Lord. And whether you say that or not, it's true. But Jesus adds another line that we can't add. Um, He says, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. Almighty God, everything that you possess is mine. Whatever belongs to the Son belongs to the Father, and whatever belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. I mean, Jesus is saying this almost offhandedly. Offhandedly. How do you say that word? He's he's being, I mean, it's almost absent-mindedly. It's just a part of his life. This is the way me and the Father talk because this is reality. Whatever is mine is his. Whatever his is mine, we are God. Here again is another revelation of Jesus' deity. He's not just our Savior. He's not just our Messiah. He's not just our rabbi, our teacher. He is very God, a very God, who shares all that the Father possesses. And if we don't understand that Jesus, the man, is the God-man, then we don't understand Christmas at all. But that's a sermon for a few weeks from now. But let me be clear here. The things, notice he says things, and that may throw you. What are the things? The pearly gates? The thrones? The the what? What are we we talking about? The things that both the Father and Son possesses are actually people. Know that because Jesus says in verse 10, and I have been glorified by them. And he's speaking of the apostles. In verse 11, he refers to these things with the personal pronoun, they These are people. This is clearly a reference to his disciples. The things that are mine, that are also yours, are the people that are being drawn to me because you are fulfilling your mission on earth through me by them. And we should notice something in verse 10 that is so obvious we might miss it, namely that we are not our own. And nowhere in here... Do we 
do we read of the apostles accepting Jesus. They were given, and they were responsive to being given. And all that given involves, I mean given, that word is full of, of every salvific description and entity in the Old Testament. This is our justification. This is our redemption. This is our salvation. This is our sanctification. This is everything, all crammed into that word, the given ones. We belong to Christ, and we belong to the Father. We do not belong to ourselves. And why would we want to belong to ourselves? I'm learning. I almost said I've learned. I'm learning as I grow older that what Pastor Dan needs more of is not more of me, more of my thinking, my ways, my impulses. What I need is more of him. Sometimes in counseling, uh, I say things like this. You don't know how to eat until God teaches you to eat. You don't know how to be angry until God teaches you to be angry. You don't know how to love until God teaches you to love. You don't know how to serve until God teaches you to serve. You don't know how to speak about yourself until God teaches you to speak about yourself. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. I don't need more of me. I need more of him. And so I'm so glad that I belong to him. And the Apostle Paul said it this way. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, okay, so there is sovereignty. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your bodies. The two always go together. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Um, verse 11, we finally get to Jesus' concern, and I think this is, this is uh, kind of the, the centerpiece of this text, or the portion, this section of the text. Namely, that he's leaving the world, but his disciples have to stay in it, and his prayer that follows. And what the disciples would have to endure in the world is, is going to be unpleasant. I mean, just turn back to chapter 15. And look at verses 18 through 20. Watch this. If the world hates you, what? The world's going to hate us? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also per- persecute you. Um, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you. Wait, 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 wait. 
They're going to kill us? <laughs> they will make you outcasts from the synagogues, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is doing service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But you know him. What's the definition of eternal life again? That you would know him. These are the given ones who have eternal life. And the prospects for their future was looking pretty bleak. So what do the disciples need? What do they need? They needed to be kept. They needed to be kept. They needed to be protected, guarded, cared for, like a mother cares for her precious child. So Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And we've already looked at your, when he refers to your name, in your name, he, he means all of God's person, all that God is, everything that you are, everything that you've promised, everything that, that will be and has been, and, and this moment is all that it means to be God. Keep them in that. I mean, who needs bubble wrap? God. God. <laughs> Aren't you glad that Jesus prayed for his men and by extension for you and me in this way? Father, they do not have the ability to protect themselves from the powers of this world that would ruin them. They are not sufficient for the task. I think that's implicit here. Holy Father, keep them. They need you to keep them. I am going away. They need you. Spurgeon points out to us our constant need to be personally tended to by the Father. He writes, you have been redeemed, but you must still be kept. You have been regenerated, but you must still be kept. You are pure in heart and hands, but you must still be kept. You are quickened by the divine life. You have aspirations after the holiest things. You love Christ, and that love is intense, but you must still be kept. The same hand that brought you must keep you. No matter how much you grow in grace, we'll always need to be kept by the Father. Sheep never grow the necessity of being kept by their shepherd. For what purpose would the Father keep them? At the end of verse 11, Jesus says that they may be one even as we are one. Now, if this had been me, I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, you kind of anticipate what's coming, right? What I would anticipate here is, uh, Father, keep them in your name so that they will not abandon me or the gospel and that they would finish the work that you have given them to do all the way to the end. That's not exactly what he says. He says, rather, Father, keep them that they may be one even as we are one. That sounds like a non sequitur. Keep them so that they will be 
one. I would expect him to say so that they could do something, not be something. And maybe, maybe the being something is the doing something. Maybe, maybe you need to keep them so that they'll have the impulse to preserve unity among them. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But Jesus isn't talking about superficial unity based on mutual tolerance or anything like that. This is a reference back to the Father's ultimate goal. He intended from before the creation of the world to bring a people together who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they would have life in his name. And God the Father will take people who are united in Christ and give them to the Son. You see, beloved, God does not command us to be unified. If we believe in Jesus, if we believe in the Jesus that is presented in the New Testament, everybody in Texas believes in Jesus, right? (laughs) Demons also believe, James says. They tremble. But if we believe savingly, if we know for certain that our only hope at the judgment seat of God is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, if the gospel of the risen Savior has transformed our lives, then we are unified. We are unified. Is not the cup that we drink mutually a common cup? This is what unites us. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, there are so many things that we differ on. And there are beloveds, beloved men who are my spiritual heroes. And man, R.C. Sproul has taught me. He's the guy who set me alight on fire for theology. When I read The Holiness of God, my life was changed. The whole course of my life changed. I showed that to someone this morning. I pulled it off my shelf. I still have my original copy that I borrowed from my best friend in college and never gave back. <laughs> I offered it to him decades later, and he said, keep it. I've got a new one. But um, that book set my soul on fire. I still have it, and I'll never loan it to you. <laughs> if I do, it'll have my name all through it, right? But, um, but you know what? There are things that R.C. Sproul teaches that I go, are you kidding me? Um, D. James Kennedy, same way. Love that guy. Still speaks from the grave. I mean, not, you know, from his writings and stuff. Um, love that man. John Piper. Man, some of the things he writes... I mean, it just sets a fire in my soul. And other times I think, are you kidding me? Really? How? Ah. And we differ. And if you sit us down and, and, and get honest about a specific topic in the Bible, we may go, look, you're just dead wrong. I mean, you're wrong. And you say, is that unity? Not on that issue, it's not. Speaking of D. James Kennedy, I was in a a seminar with him one time. I was in the audience. Uh, (laughs) Me and like 400 of my friends, you know, were. And he was talking about, it was the Justification by Faith Alone conference. And he was talking a little bit about unity. And he said, you know, I was in a room one time with a bunch of people. We just came for a Bible study. And and I had not been there before. And I wanted to get to know everybody. And, and p- there were different stripes of evangelicalism all around the room, and there was one Catholic lady. 
And he said, uh, so you go around the room and you ask him, what's your only hope for salvation? And one person said, um, my only hope is Jesus Christ. And the second one said, uh, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All right, I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't there, I'm trying to retell. Um, the third one said, I have no righteousness in myself. I have nothing to recommend myself to God. But by Jesus Christ, I would be damned. He's my only hope. And he went around the room, and everybody had that kind of response. And they got to the Catholic lady, and she said, because I'm good. I'm sorry. There's all different branches of Christianity there, of evangelicalism, people who believe in the evangel, the gospel. And when it came to Jesus Christ, there was unity. Why? Because they have all had the exact same thing happen to them. God has transformed their heart. And they know the only hope that I have is in Jesus Christ. He is my redemption. He is my justification. He is my sanctification. He is my eternal life. Without him, I'm nothing. So can we be in disunity on topics of issues with men we love and and ha that has no effect on our unity. And I would say, absolutely. So I can go, um, we haven't announced this yet, but next month I'm going to Uganda. And uh, I'm going down there with Terry Anns, and we're going to teach preachers on preaching. And maybe, I, maybe we can teach them how to do it a little more systematic than I do. But, um, but when I get down there, I know, even though we don't have the same language, we're going to worship together. And there are brothers down there I know by name. Can't wait to see them. Haven't seen them in years. But when we're together, the unity is obvious. And here's the incredible thing. We don't have to be together for that unity to be in place. It is the fellowship of the saints. It is union with Christ. We are unified if we are in Christ no matter how much we grow in grace, no matter how much um, God does in our lives, we continually need to be kept. And the purpose for God's keeping us is so that at the end there will be one unified whole. A group of people who cannot be numbered, who will spend the rest of eternity joyfully worshiping and praising and doing the bidding of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true unity. It's a unity that can never be revoked. This is God's purpose for preserving us. And then finally, from what danger does God preserve us? Well, certainly God preserves us from the devil. And John says in a letter, epistle, the greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? So certainly he guards us from that, and he guards us from any number of things. Certainly the Father protects us from the devil and his minions, but more importantly, he preserves us from apostasy. Turning our backs permanently on Jesus Christ. He keeps us from abandoning him. Where do I get that from? It's the only conclusion I can come to based on verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I think this is the name here that is given. Jesus has the same name as God. What's that, God? Lord. 
Um, by the way, the, the, in, in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, that is his name. Lord. Yahweh. Jehovah. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, Lord. Not just in charge, but God. Uh, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and watch this, and not one of them perished. Not one of them perished. But the son of perdition. I had to look up perdition. What does perdition mean? That's not a term we use. Okay, you ready for this? Shocking. It means hell. Son of hell. That son of hell. And notice the last phrase. So that scripture would be fulfilled. What is that alluding to? It's alluding to this. It's alluding to the reality that Jesus again and again and again acknowledges that this has been the plan from the beginning. And all along the way, God said, this will happen, and then 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 this will happen. And Jesus even says, I, I am telling these things to you in advance so that you will know when they happen that I have said these things to you. And one of the things that was said was that one who was close to Jesus would betray him. He was not one of the given ones. He was the son of perdition. And we can argue all day long about why Jesus would choose one like Judas. And I think the simplest answer was it was the Father's will. And whatever Jesus did was the Father's will. Son of perdition. Jesus is simply saying that those who are kept by the Father will never end up like Judas. Yes, you will sin. Yes, you will be tempted severely at times. Sometimes the pain may be so bad that you wonder if God even exists. And you will be tempted. But you will be kept. Remember the story of Adoniram Judson. What a tale. And we don't have time to go into that, but when his wife and son died on the field, he went out into a jungle, built himself a little hut, dug a grave, and sat in it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he wasn't even sure God existed anymore. God kept him, preserved him, and brought him safely home. When he came to his senses, he went home to England. He got married again. There's a great book called The Three Wives of Judson. <laughs> and came back on the field three times. Amazing. Why? I mean, that's not natural. Exactly. It's supernatural. That's the point of all of this. The Father is keeping you. And so those whom the Father keeps never turn back, finally. They don't ultimately make Jesus their enemy. 
Yes, you have the responsibility to keep yourself in the love of God, Jude says. But your heavenly Father is more committed to keeping you, protecting you, preserving, caring for you than you will ever be able to do. And he will bring you home and present you to his son one day in the unity, the communion of the saints, the church of Jesus Christ in all her glory to the praise of his glorious grace. I love this passage in John's gospel because it gives us a glimpse of some of the great mysteries behind our salvation. And one of those mysteries is the double-handed safety of which Jesus alluded to back in John 10 when he said these words. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Beloved, are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then I have good news for you. Jesus' prayer is being answered right now. The Lord is keeping you. He's preserving on you. He's preserving you. And every time you feel like life is out of control, God is sovereignly reminding you that you are dependent on him. And that's where we are and where we love to be. Amen? All those whom the Father has given to the Son will be guarded and protected until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much mystery here, so much glory here. It's more than our feeble minds can comprehend. And, and I think even when we are perfected and glorified in heaven, there will be mysteries about you that just cause us to scratch our head and smile with wonder, love, and praise. And so give us grace, Father, to understand your truth, to believe it, to receive it, to honor you by obeying it and responding to it in appropriate ways. Give us grace to own our sin and to have an opus and honest attitude about our sin. And, oh, Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is yet to know the Lord Jesus Christ, personally to know him. Oh, Father, I pray that today would be the day that your spirit so moves in their hearts that they repent and believe savingly. All of this for your great glory and for all of our great joy. We pray in Jesus' name.